Hey, it's Brian, and if you're listening in real time, I'd like to wish you a very happy National Poinsettia Day. That's December 12th. And if you've ever wondered how poinsettias became more or less the official Christmas flower, well, stay subscribed and keep listening because there's a whole episode dedicated to that very topic hitting your podcast feed in a few days. And with just under two weeks to the big day, we have plenty more backstories to your favorite Christmas traditions and Christmas memories from listeners just like you. But today is a little surprise episode, as I like to do when I have something special to share. I recently took a trip down memory lane with my new friend Mark Voger. He's the author of Holly Jolly, celebrating Christmas past in pop culture. I figure that's right up our alley here at Christmas Past, so I'm delighted to share our conversation here with you. Just a heads up that it was recorded over Zoom, and, well, it sounds like it. But before we get into it, let me remind you that I would love to send you a handwritten Christmas card and an official Christmas Past sticker. All you have to do is rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and then reach out to me with your mailing address. Contact me at christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com for more. Let me also remind you that there's still time to share a Christmas memory to appear in an episode. If you've been listening to the season so far, you'll know that I pre-recorded most of my episodes months ago and that all of the listener-submitted memories will appear in special compilation episodes like the one that came out on December 9th. Well, I'm just over the moon excited to let you know that there will be more episodes just like that between now and the big day. At least two, but maybe as many as four. And I want yours to be among them. All you have to do is record a voice memo into your phone and send it to christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. Just keep it reasonably short, clean and family-friendly, and be sure to say your name and where you're from. And finally, come on over to christmaspast.media and check out the definitive directory of Christmas podcasts. It's right there on the homepage, and it's a listing of about 180 Christmas podcasts. There's sure to be something new for you to liven up your Christmas playlist. Well, I'll come back at the end to wrap up and say goodbye. But for now, please enjoy my conversation with Mark Foger. Hello and welcome. It's yours truly, Brian Earl here, coming to you from the all-new Christmas Past headquarters in wonderful Willow Glen, California. You know, when it comes to Christmas, there are a lot of words people use to describe it, the warmth, the magic. But for someone like me and my guest today, nostalgia would rank high on that list as well. There's nothing that can create feelings of nostalgia quite like our favorite day of the year. And it happens to be the subject of an all-new book. I'm holding up a copy here called Holly Jolly, and I'm very happy to welcome the author of that book, Mark Vogel. Welcome to Christmas Past. Brian, thanks for having me. Uh, I, I hope I get invited back again sometime. Oh, most certainly. I, I would imagine so because there's so much to go through in this book. And this is, you know, what, what the kind of book that I grew up with around Christmas time. They'd always be on my coffee table. And I suppose that you could read it cover to cover, but you could also do it like I've been. And just you flip open to any page and there's just really something interesting that you can sort of, you know, go back and forth. And almost every time you open the book, there's just something new and fun to hang out with for a little while. Why don't you tell us how this book came about? Well, um, I, I, it's the third in, in a series of uh, pop culture histories that I've done. The first one was called Monster Mash. It was about the monster craze of the 60s. And then the second was called Groovy, which was about psychedelia of the 60s into the early 70s. So this seemed like the next logical topic because uh, I, I designed the books as well. So I'm trying for something visual, as, you know, uh, something like eye candy rich. And um, also just some, something, a rich topic that really permeated pop culture. And I can't think of a topic that um, inspired more uh, media and, uh, than Christmas. There's uh, Christmas mo- movies and music and animation, food, stained glass windows, a- anything you can think of. Little Debbie's uh, Christmas tree cakes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's so much 
has sprung out of Christmas. Well, I want to let everyone listening on the podcast know that if you'd like to see what I'm seeing, you can check this out as a video on YouTube. And for our YouTube watchers, if you just want to listen to it, that's fine too. You can find it on the main Christmas Past podcast feed. So for those of on the audio only, I'll do my best to describe what the people who can see this are seeing. But what Mark has done is prepared five, of, I guess we'll call them nostalgia triggers from the book that we're going to go through one by one. And so the first one is I'm going to open up to, it's right here on page... Um, 35 of the book, and that is the Babar cartoon, Babar's, or Santa's Helper. Now, Mark, Babar is one of those things that I'm familiar with. I'm sure I've encountered it at one point or another. It's just not something I grew up with, right? I think it's something I sort of discovered later on. So, so help me out here. What is, um, who was Babar and what is this special? Well, Bab, you know, Babar was, a, uh, was, of course, a big cartoon elephant who was a, a king of, an, of a fictional country. And uh, he was a uh, created by, um, well, the, the writer-artist was uh, Jean de Brunhoff, but it was actually his wife, Cecile, who created the character. Very interesting origin story. Um, she told it, uh, she created it as a bedtime story that she told her, her two sons, their two sons, Matthew and Laurent, and uh, they loved it, and uh, their father was an illustrator. So uh, eventually uh, the boys uh, asked their father to illustrate the story, and uh, it, it wound up uh, it wound up turning out so well that that they, uh, that Jean decided to make it into a children's book, and that came out way back in 1931, the first um, um, Babar story, and um, the uh, with the book uh, that that's Christmas related came out uh, ten years later in 1940, but um, uh, he uh, he had been gone for three years. Uh, Jean de Bruno died in 1937, and uh, what happened was. Uh, he had done the Babar story, Babar and Father Christmas, for for a news for a newspaper, and he did it in black and white, just the ink drawings. Perhaps he he did uh, want to uh, expand it into a book later, or actually do it as a book later. Um, but he but he passed away, and so posthumously uh, the coloring was added, and it, somebody did a very beautiful job, very faithful to Jean de Bruno's style of uh, ink and then uh, watercolors uh, or what appear to be watercolors to my untrained eye. And uh, it's a sweet story. And, uh, and uh, you know, Brian, sometimes I put myself in the mind of people back then thinking um, there's never going to be another Babar book because uh, Jean de Brunhoff passed away. And then just in time for Christmas, three years later, there's a Babar, meet, Babar and Father Christmas book. And so it's like a Christmas miracle. Mm-hmm. Do you happen to have a copy of the book for yourself? Yes, I do. Uh, not first edition, but um, I do have it. Um, and, uh, you know, because I, actually I, I got to, I have a very healthy collection of Christmas media. And, uh, but but um, for, um, for Holly Jolly, I did, you know, get stuff just for it. Like the cover is from a 1958 comic book and the back cover is a Bijou uh, Santa Claus doll that I, that I actually bought for that purpose. And yeah, I made sure and get uh, Babar. And uh, the reason I picked it for our uh, nostalgia trigger, as you say, is because it's, it's off the beaten path. Uh, as you say, like The Grinch by Dr. Seuss is much more familiar. Mm -hmm. And of course, Golden Books, Rudolph Redner's Reindeer. But, um, and, and, and even, um, uh, even, even some of the other Golden Books. But um, Babar is like a little, a little more receding into the past. And I just thought it was a, a really sweet story. 
And I noticed there are a lot of stories, or maybe not a lot, but several stories, at least uh, from my experience, that are um, maybe weren't just aren't popular here in, in the states, right? Like I know in England, Raymond Briggs is the snowman is just you know that's like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer to them. Whereas here, it's more like a specialty interest. Is Babar? Um, is it more of like an, a British thing or an American thing, or like where is that most popular? Uh, I, I'm really not sure. Uh, perhaps France. I mean, I'm really not that oh. sure. But but I but I do have. Uh, I'm older than you. I'm 62. I do have faint memories of, of seeing him around, maybe, uh, you know, at other kids' houses. I, I know we didn't have a bar book where we are. But um, it, it is true. Um, if, 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 if a book like Holly Jolly were done from the point of view of a, of a Brit, it would be different. This is mostly, uh, you know, an American uh, view. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, uh, Anglophilic geeking out, you know, a lot of like Dickens, uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of like, uh, you know, Christmas crackers, there's, there's stuff in there that, you know, could, because a lot of our, our Christmas culture did come across, like it, it went from Germany to England. And then, and then in the, at the turn of the century, the last century, it went, it, it, it hopped the pond over here to the mm-hmm. States. Well, speaking of Americans, there is one American I'm thinking of uh, without whom we couldn't imagine Christmas that we know today. And that, of course, is Bing Crosby. Uh, So I, for those of, again, if you're listening, I'm opening up to this page uh, here in the book where we're looking at the cover of of Bing's Christmas album. Just a little aside, uh, before I moved here to Willow Glen, which is a neighborhood of San Jose, I lived up in San Mateo, a little further up the Bay Area Peninsula. And if you go directly west, you hit a town called Hillsboro, which is where Bing Crosby lived and his estate still is. Uh, You can drive by and see it. It's actually kind of what you'd expect to find of a someone who's a huge star in the 40s and 50s. Um, and, you know, like you really just cannot get through Christmas without listening to White Christmas, without watching the movie uh, and, and so on and so forth. So let's just talk a little bit about Bing Crosby. Uh, you want to start with the album? Oh, well, sure. Uh, well, uh, the, well, the, uh, the song itself, White Christmas, uh, it still stands as the, 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 the biggest Bing Crosby version as the biggest selling uh, record. And um, he first sang it in. Uh, on Christmas Day in 1941 over the radio. And of course, that's December 1941. So it's only a, uh, you know, weeks after the attack on Pearl Harbor. So uh, a lot of a lot of Americans were thinking about, uh, you know, uh, going, you know, having to go overseas to defend America. And so the uh, the lyric, just like the ones I used to know, was very resonant. And, and, and as the war uh, dragged on, um, you know, it, 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 its popularity just kept renewing itself uh, around Christmas time. And again, the, the, bo- the boys were, were thinking of home. And um, I think what's interesting about that song and about Bing Crosby singing that song is that, well, he sang it uh, more or less the rest of his career, but um, he sang it um, uh, in, a, in a movie called Holiday Inn, which was uh, his co-star was Fred Astaire. So there's the dream team. And um, it, um, no surprise here, but Fred Astaire played a dancer, Bing played a singer, but um, but they both cross over uh, to to each other's uh, you know comfort zones. But it's a real neat movie, and Bing sings White Christmas in it actually twice. And then um, but then the biggie was 1954, um, the Vista Vision color big musical directed by Michael Curtiz, White Christmas with uh, Danny Kaye as Bing's cohort. And then the uh, love interests were uh, Rosemary Clooney, aunt of George Clooney, and Vera Ellen, she of the uh, freakishly long legs, and she could do anything with them. Uh, you know, she, she tapped with inhuman precision. And uh, it, it's heartwarming. And, and then finally, uh, when you get to the, the, literally to the end of Bing's uh, life, um, 
he sang that duet with David Bowie for television of um, uh, uh, Little Drummer Boy and Peace on Earth. And uh, just the neat thing about that is he bridged generational gaps. He didn't have much time. He, d he died a little more than a month later after playing golf. And, uh, you know, so, so we did, and he did sing White Christmas in that special, not with Bowie, but, but he wrapped up that special with, with that one last version of White Christmas. Mm. And um, I've been meaning to cover uh, Bing Crosby. As a matter of fact, I've been trying to get in touch with his estate over in Hillsborough to get an interview. Uh, and one of the things I personally find interesting about him was that when he um, really was starting to become popular, a new kind of ribbon microphone was coming onto the market that allowed the singer to get very close to it and sing sort of um, a little bit lower. And that's part of his signature sound, that just smooth, mellow, relaxed sound wouldn't have been possible were it not for the microphone technology of the day. And so, you know, you, you kind of think that singers making use of things like auto-tune and all of that is, is like a new thing, but it's been around for a really long time. And uh, on Christmas past, when I talk about backstories, I really like to get into those little nitty gritty surprising details. So maybe in a future season. Uh, one thing before we move on and not to be a, a wet blanket, but whenever we mention Holiday Inn, I just need to uh, let viewers know that it was Absolutely. a different time back then. There is one scene in it that just you know it would not be appropriate for today's viewers um google it take it with a grain of salt but i just kind of feel like if you've never seen the movie i wouldn't want you to see it and then say why didn't brian warn me about that one scene yes and and you're and, and you're referring you're referring to the the blackface sequence. i am yeah and it's uh it, it is offensive by today's standards and uh um it, there's so much of that i mean judy garland did it and um mm. uh, uh laurel and hardy and buster keaton and, it, it, and even even John Wayne and Jimmy Cagney did blackface scenes, uh, and it's 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 sad, and it's um it's it's a regrettable aspect of of classic movies. Mm. Yep, and, and um, I was mentioning this to someone else the other day. Uh, one of the things I do during the off-season is I'll narrate classic Christmas fiction, and a lot of the same stuff comes up. Uh, and a story will seem to be fine for like halfway through, and then all of a sudden there'll just be some choice language where you're like, okay, I, I guess we're moving on from that. Um, you know, that's just sort of what, what any area of history that you focus on, there's going to be those kinds of elements. And so I just try to help people navigate around them in the way that makes sense for them. Right on, sure. So let's move on to a movie that I've never seen before, but it's about someone I've heard of, and that's Santa Claus. So uh, again, if you are watching, you can see, but if you are on the um, podcast only, I'm opening up to a page where I'm looking at a movie poster. And it's a movie poster of a movie called Santa Claus that was made in Mexico. Uh, so you're just gonna have to help me out a lot on this one. Why don't you just dive in? Okay, I highly recommend the Mexican Santa Claus. It came out in 1959. It is weird um, and it's available. Uh, um, it was basically the way it started. I'll try to wrap it up, Brian. Is um, it was sort of, sort of almost false advertising. They almost advertised it like it was a, a Disney movie, an enchanted world of make believe. But uh, it was really it was like this brain twisting uh, material. It, it was directed by the Mexicans. Did a lot of um, uh, the Mexican studio uh, Aztec Azteca films. Did a lot of horror movies. And uh, a director named Rene Cardona, one of my favorite directors, did Santa Claus. But he also did all these like wrestling people versus monsters, like, you know, Las Luchadoras contra la momia, you know, uh, like, um, and uh, so some of his sen horror sensibilities crept into Santa Claus. So there's, so there's a scene of hell and there's devils wearing red uh, robes. Actually, they're robes that almost look like KKK robes, only they're red. And they're walking through fire and brimstone. And the devil is commanding um, the, the devil is commanding a devil named Pitch 
to go to Earth and and coerce the children into doing bad things. So um, so it's and then you know hilarity ensues. But it's it, it's so it's so twisted. Um, Santa Claus actually uh, uses sleeping powder to make sure that the children stay asleep while he's doing his Christmas Eve deliveries. And um, instead of elves, his his workforce are it's it's like a sweat house, a sweat sweat factory. It's um children from all over the world that are you know making helping to make toys for him, and it's just really weird and uh, weird and weird and wonderful. And uh, mm. if you uh, have had like uh, too much eggnog and cookies and your glucose levels are going kablooey this is the perfect movie to watch well it sounds like it and you said it's a, one of those things you can find on like youtube or archive.org or someplace like that sure it's on youtube and uh it, like i said it's charming just just it's almost like like if you like plan nine from outer space you know mm-hmm. if, you, if you're if you're if you tend to like cult movies santa claus 1959 Well, let's move on to movies that uh, I have seen. And those are, of course, the several animated shorts that I kind of grew up with. And every now and then I'll go on YouTube and find one of those compilations. So uh, again, if you're listening, I'm opening up to this page here that has a bunch of these uh, animated shorts, like from Disney, Warner Brothers. Um, And there are a lot of, of older ones that I'm not even sure who makes them. And I don't know if you're like me, one of the things what, that I always notice when I watch those old ones is just the quality of the animation, right? Like where each of those, like the frame rate was higher, the quality of the, the illustrations was higher. Um, and I'm always surprised looking at it through modern eyes that like they figured all this stuff out like back in the 30s, like the 20s and 30s, like this really sophisticated animation stuff. And one of the first practical applications was to create Christmas content. Uh, so is there one in particular that you wanted to, to dive into? Yeah, I thought, I thought I'd talk about... Um... Uh, the Fleischer Brothers, uh, 1936 short, Christmas Comes But Once a Year. Mm-hmm. And um, what's neat about that is um, everybody knows the Disney ones, you know, uh, to- uh, Toy Shop and the Donald Duck ones. But not, not as many people know, know the Fleischer material. But they're the guys that did the early Popeyes that you see sometimes that are black and white. And you just watch them and you're like, what is this? The Betty Boop cartoons and uh, Coco the Clown, like just really weird stuff. Um, cause these, these guys were, uh, you know, these guys were immigrants and they started out in New York, went to Florida and they, they were just, um, their, their stuff is just weirder, like a little bit less, I don't want to say that it wasn't family friendly, although, um, Betty Boop, you know, idled at fetishy, but, um, Christmas comes but once a year, uh, uh, you, you mentioned the animation, uh, the, the growing more sophisticated, uh, one of the Fleischers, one of the Fleischer brothers, Max invented a uh, you know, revolutionary process called rotoscoping. And um, their first animated feature was Gulliver's Travels. It, um, it came out just, it was the second ever animated film after Disney's Snow White. And the Gulliver Travel, the Gulliver character was filmed by a real actor. And then they, you know, uh, the, the process is pretty complicated, but they basically kind of like drew over him. So that when you watch it, it looks so much uh, more realistic, although it is still obviously drawn and animated. And um, there's, there's a couple of instances of rotoscoping in Christmas Comes But Once a Year. When you first see the orphanage, it, 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 a, uh, uh, it opens at this orphanage where the kids are waking up on, all these babies are waking up on Christmas morning. There's no adult supervision, but there are Christmas presents, but they all fall apart one by one. And, they're, and the, so these kids are all bawling. And, and, but luckily, Professor, Professor Grampy is, happens to be uh, traveling by and he hears the, the cries of the children and goes in. So when they introduce that orphanage, it's, it's, it's really kind of 
breathtaking the way the way they it just uh, sort of rolls around and then you you see the front and then at the very end professor grampy uh, has a christmas tree that's rotating and he turns off the lights and they all sing to it and again it's rotoscoping so it really looks it really has this weird like it's, it's realistic but it's cartoony at the same time kind of a look and I know exactly the scene that you're talking about. It's the opening shot where it almost looks like a crane shot where you're getting like this full like 3D, the camera's going around the building. And I remember the first time I saw that, this was maybe 10 years ago, I saw it on YouTube. I'm like, there's no way that like they drew, like, I, I, like how? Because it is, like you said, it's just so perfect. It's like one of these swooping like steady cam kind of shots. Um, and it, yeah, it just really sells it and just creates a sense of realism. And like, yeah, I'm always surprised that something like that was even possible when it was possible. And when you see stuff today that is digitally perfected, I mean, I, I, I like the old stuff better because you can, you can see that it's drawn and you can mm. wonder how did they do it or even better yet, just get lost in it, you know. But when, you, when you're watching digital perfection, actually it comes boring after a while. Yeah, it's a, you, you kind of want to, you, you want to see the artist's hands just a little bit in there that you need to see like some of the flaws as well, just so that you see the, the brush strokes, you see the, the craftsmanship that went behind it. And of course, you know, there's plenty of craftsmanship that goes into today's animation, but it was just a different ball game back then. Uh, and speaking of, of old versus new, uh, we'll finish off with our final nostalgia trigger. I'm opened up to a page where the Honeymooners um, Christmas episode. Honeymooners, of course, like the best sitcom of all time. I could watch that all day. Um, there have been days where I have watched that all day. <laughs> used to be pretty prominent on Nick at Night. I remember as a teenager just staying up for hours and hours watching it. Um, you know, and so what that tells me as someone who uh, sort of grew up after that show was popular, that it's timeless. I mean, classic comedy is classic because it would work today. You could take those same situations, those same characters, put them in a modern setting, and it would still work, right? Because it is just basic bread and butter situation comedy. Uh, so let's talk about the Christmas. There's the um, one that came out on December 24th, 1955. And how about we just talk about the plot of this one? Oh, thank you, Brian. Sure. Well, it's a, it's a, um, a, a gift-giving debacle. Um, uh, Ralph, we, we don't know this throughout the episode. It's revealed halfway through. But Ralph had saved up 22 bucks to buy a really cool rocking uh, Christmas present for Alice, and he blew it on a bowling ball. So um, uh, he he uh, gets instead he gets her this uh, this little box made out of uh, 2,000 uh, matchsticks glued together. The, the the guy who sold it to him said it was once owned by the Emperor of Japan. Typical uh, Ralph Cramden screw up, and so uh, he confesses this to Ed. And um, they have to figure out, you know, how to save Christmas. Um, but what's what's really neat about it is, you know, it it, it it's um uh, it's got deception and near misses, and it's got slapstick when Ralph, you know, uh, accidentally puts his hand and it's caught by a mousetrap. Uh, Self reflection, regret, forgiveness. There's an O Henry twist, but best of all, Brian, at the very end, and this should be on everybody's clip reel for for Christmas. Um, Ralph, uh, Jackie Gleason as Ralph Cramden, gives, gives a soliloquy about, about the spirit of Christmas. And the thing that always sticks in my head is that he says, you know, the closer it gets to Christmas, the quieter it gets, and there might be snow falling. And then he, he says, in, on the streets of Bensonhurst in Brooklyn, um, if, you, if you knocked into somebody uh, on a, on a no normal day, you say, hey, what's the matter with you? You know, whatever. But like on Christmas Eve, it's like, hey, hey, how you doing, pal? Merry Christmas, you know. Like everybody gets nicer, you know. And he and he says, um, 
it's, he doesn't say it's great to go home to a house where somebody loves you. He says, which is so sweet, even sweeter, it's great to go back home and in that home you know there's somebody that you're crazy about. Mm -hmm. So it's just heartwarming. What a wonderful way to cap this episode off. Uh, the new book is Holly Jolly. And Mark, where can people find this? Uh, well, it's on uh, the, the publisher's website, tomorrows.com, T-W-O, Morrows. It's also on um, barnesandnoble.com, uh, Target, uh, Amazon, Walmart, you know, just pretty much wherever books are sold online. As, as they used to say in the commercials, uh, wherever fine books are sold. Uh, uh, so the, the book finer is Holly Jolly. <laughs> It's brought me many hours of pleasure here at the Christmas Past headquarters, and I think it might for you as well. So be sure to pick up a copy for that. And um, be sure to check back on a future episode, because like Mark says, I have a feeling he's going to be coming back soon to talk about more of the content we find in Holly Jolly. And for those of you who are uh, listening, you're, you're not seeing what I'm seeing, which is a Humpty Dumpty coming into the shot. Uh, what's, what's the story behind that? Oh, just like, he just, he's just really cool. I think he's <laughs> on my cover, yeah. I, I stuck him on there, and, and he's a full page inside. So, you know, uh, so, you know, he's just really cool. You know, you can always find like, you can always find weird Christmas stuff from, you know, a half century or more ago. It's great. Yeah, for sure. Well, Mark Vogler, thank you so much for joining me on Christmas Past and a Merry Christmas to you and yours. Thank you, Brian. Take care of yourself. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. And something I hope just as much is that your Christmas season is going wonderfully so far. Hey, drop me a line and let me know how it's going. You can get in touch anytime, and I sure wish you would because I love hearing from you. You can reach me anytime at christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com or connect on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you haven't yet joined the private Christmas Past Facebook group, come on by and do it today. We celebrate all year. If you're listening in real time, I'll be back with an all-new episode tomorrow. And just between you and me, this was my favorite one of the season to write. It's the backstory to one of your favorite Christmas traditions, and I'm excited to share it with you. Until then, let me remind you as always that Christmas Past is produced in wonderful Willow Glen, California, by yours truly, Brian Earle. And please remember to stay safe and healthy, look out for one another, and may your days be merry and bright. <laughs>